There are days that define your story beyond your life. Welcome to 5-Minute Arrival. The podcast where we look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. Any questions? Where do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is a priority. Our priority today, minutes 91 to 95 of Arrival, which begin in the middle of the conversation between Louise and Costello. Costello has just told her, use weapon. And we have a guest, Father David Mowry, the chaplain of the Movies by Minutes community, I think is what you call yourself. Or we call you. Yes, that's that's correct. <laughs> now, I don't know how you write that in Heptapod. I think there there's, let me try to describe it. So there's a big circle and then there's some, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think there's one for chaplain or movies or, by, <laughs> well, or minutes. I'm sure there's one for podcast. I'm sure Ian and, and Luis made sure that was in like the second lesson. <laughs> I mentioned something from the story last time. There was a little bit left where Louise says in the original short story, if I could have described this to someone who didn't know, she might ask, if the heptopods already knew everything that they would ever say or hear, what was the point of their using language at all? A reasonable question. But language wasn't only for communication, it was also a form of action. According to Speech Act theory, statements like, you're under arrest, I christen this vessel, or I promise, were all performative. The speaker could perform the action only by uttering the words, for such acts, knowing what would be said didn't change anything. Everyone at a wedding anticipated the words I now pronounce you husband and wife, but until the minister actually said them, the ceremony didn't count. With performative language, saying equal doing. All right. I, I agree with the theory, but I take issue with the wedding example. And the, this, only because it's within my spiritual ballywick. Okay. It, it is, in fact, at least in Catholic theology, I, I can't speak to my Protestant brothers and sisters, but in Catholic theology, the speech act that makes the wedding is the exchange of vows. The minister, my role is merely to be witness to that speech act. Other than that, I agree with that general theory. It speaks to the Catholic understanding of liturgy. Liturgy is a performative action. It is also performative speech. It is ritual speech. So there is a rubric that is followed every time mass is celebrated, every time a wedding, a baptism, confession. There are words that are always the same in each of those actions, but it is the performance of that language that serves as a sign of the presence of a higher reality, that in using that ritual language in the Catholic tradition, we give witness to the fact that God is unchanging. And so there is always that word of God, who is Jesus himself, which is being spoken in this moment, whatever else the historical circumstances of the people might be. So the heptopods are just good liturgists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but I, I'm i Catholic, baptized and confirmed. I was raised Catholic, so my brain was just going on a journey of <laughs> <laughs> the comfort of ritual and what I enjoyed about Catholic Mass when I was younger, which was the ritual and comfort in the repetition mm -hmm. that when you go to Mass, you know that these certain words or these acts are going to be performed and you can follow along with it very easily. And it's like you're in this other space where you're sure, at least for the next hour, what's going to happen. And it's like an anxiety reduction, <laughs> if that makes sense. So if we, if we continue this line of thought, then that explains 
a lot, if, if we if we kind of follow this metaphor, that explains a lot why the heptapods are so chill because <laughs> they're they're at ease all the time. You know, it, it's like a Catholic yeah. at mass. <laughs> yeah. They know the words that are going to come right. next, mm-hmm. and the words have to be said. They have to be performed, but there's no anxiety about how the conversation is going to go. And so Abbott and Costello can be at ease even when they they show up to Earth because they know how this ritual, this liturgy of communication that's going to take place between them and the humans is going to go. It's not just an inability to read alien emotions that makes the question of whether Costello is grieving for Abbott or whether death is a sad thing for the heptapods. I think just the very concept of language and time means that they're able to have a certain detachment from it. They, they know it's coming, and so they can just be at peace and at ease with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let the guests do all the heavy lifting, too. No, that that's that that's that's a good point. I was I was now I was in my head because church I grew up in it wasn't as uh, uniform the length of the service or what was involved, mm-hmm. and so there would be this sense of dread as you're waiting for the announcement <laughs> of which ministers giving the sermon, <laughs> because you knew some of them were going to go long. And a very different kind of speech act. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh no, whoever's talking will be here for hours. <laughs> yeah. That only happened slightly in Catholic Church. It's like there there was the one priest who you knew was gonna give like the seventeen minute homily instead of the ten minute one, but you know, it wasn't really like a big difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll say now now we're right inside my wheelhouse because I'm actually an instructor of homiletics at the seminary where I teach. (laughs) So I always always tell my students, look, the the homily is as long as it needs to be, but the longer it is, the exponentially better it has to become. Right. Like, That's once, like once, being a speech teacher. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. If your speech is long, it better be good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. No stem winders, please. Yeah. Well, in, in yeah, in the in the Protestant tradition, the uh, the length of the sermons is so much longer because there isn't the same ritual experience that signifies and communicates that presence of God. The sermon becomes that primary way that the people engage with the presence of God in their lives. The Catholic understanding is that the homily is an important part. You need to break open scripture. You need to have that time to appreciate how the word of God is being spoken into our lives. But the ritual, the the action of the Eucharist, of the re-presentation of the Lord's Supper, is a powerful experience of that presence of God here and now, where past, present, and future all kind of collapse into this liturgic present tense. Whereas in a non-liturgical tradition, you've got to put all of that stress onto the speech of the sermon. My great-grandfather was a Lutheran minister in Western Pennsylvania, and he would always say that if you don't preach for at least 20 minutes, you haven't given the people their money's worth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm actually a Western Pennsylvania Catholic, so... Is that right? Yes. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I was born in Chicago, but grew up in Pittsburgh. Had all my schooling there. Went to Catholic school there, so... Wow. The Maori clan is from Greenville. Oh, okay. Up, up near yeah. Sharon. Mm-hmm. That was a very strange experience to walk through a graveyard where all the tombstones have your name on it. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, like a good sermon, podcast shouldn't get too long without being really good, too. Not that we're not doing great, but we haven't even gotten yeah. into what, the segment at all. Oh, right. We're talking about a movie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because the last segment ended with Costello saying Louise has weapon. Now the ink changes to use weapon. And notably from the sort of unofficial list of logograms, 
the little squiggle on the top of this logogram that looks kind of like the old Quicksilver logo mm-hmm. for clothing is the word for solve, not specifically use. Mm. But it, they, the subtitle, they put it as use weapon. So Louise says, I don't understand. No, no. <laughs> I, I just want you to imagine. So in these five minutes, every, yeah. then this happened to me. Every time that Louise says, I don't understand, I heard the word kangaroo. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> of that story she told right, yeah, right. to mm-hmm. the colonel earlier on. So yeah. just every time she says, I don't understand, I just think kangaroo, kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it somewhat undercut the drama of the scene, unfortunately. <laughs> No, but the the question I had, and maybe this came up in your last batch of minutes, did Louise Banks, of all people, really teach the heptopods the word weapon before she taught them the word for language? I don't know about before. She was, it's not in the movie version, but in the script, she is specifically told to figure out the word weapon. Okay. Like the military, that's the word they add to her list. Mm -hmm. We didn't see her teach them that or learn that. So it it did come up deliberately. Okay. And are all the all the heptapods sharing language? So if other countries taught them the word weapon, then they knew the word. Right. In yeah, <laughs> if the, it, in theory, the heptapods could be connecting everything they're learning in all of the twelve locations, and mm. they're getting even ahead of. Although I don't know how our computer program works then, because no one's sharing resources anymore. But we we do get the shot here of Costello's back. And it rises up to what I'm calling his head, although I don't like it. And I, I was, I, I, I don't like their shape. <laughs> I was really disappointed when we got to see those full shots of Abbott and Costello. That what I really wanted was for those two aliens to actually be connected to one bigger alien. Yes, and that Abbott and Costello were actually just hands with a little uh-huh. tinier fingers on their fingers that were interacting with the glass like that would have been super creepy and like oh this is so much bigger than i thought and everything's connected i thought that would have been really great just kind of creep out science I've, fiction i've been saying that on this show <laughs> that they look like their hands and they're even their bodies lean back a little like their arms coming up from them and in this segment we get a shot of hands there's one of the things she gets of hannah is hannah moving her hands around i'm like yeah see they're telling us this whole vision she's got now of costello is wrong yeah and it's not just hannah moving her hands around but she's touching ground earth rock mm-hmm. various yeah her moving, fingers are walking are, around yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. they're cluing us in which means this entire segment or well not the entire segment but this conversation with costello doesn't happen she's it's louise imagining it while she's still knocked unconscious probably or maybe was there a fever gene theory for arrival <laughs> I'm inventing it now <laughs> so that they can still be hands. <laughs> I'll make it fit with my yeah. cannon. Now, he says we help humanity when she asks, what is your purpose here? I would point out that of the two logograms that form, neither one includes the word humanity, hmm. although one of them might have the word heptopod in it, a variation on it. So they, 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 the effects people were not very good with the language. In the original short story, did Chang have these logograms as part of the text, or were they just described in prose? Um, I think they were just described. In the script, they have sort of an approximation of what they should look like. But in Chang's story, they're described, and they're much more complex because they're three-dimensional. Right. They're not made to be flat up against something like vertical like these. Interesting. Well then, my I mean, my hat's off to the visual effects people for figuring out the design and shape of the logogram mm-hmm. yeah. and, and bringing that to life because I thought for sure they were just drawing on, you know, little sketches that Chang had made in the original short story. But that the imagination and the creativity behind this whole language system is very impressive. Yeah. And for the most part, it's been kind of consistent. Like, wow. It's 
you can match phrases from locogram to locogram. And when they're wrong, I point it out because that's what I do. <laughs> the thing I find interesting about the logogram and this written heptapod language, and I didn't bother to look through the rest of the movie, so I don't point this out if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the heptapods always write in the present tense. There's, there's, And I don't think that's just a translation error. I don't know if the written heptapod language has any other verb tense. No, I don't think so. Since everything's happening all at the same time or when it's happening. Well, especially when when they have to bother writing, it's something important for someone else. So it's Mm -hmm. right now. It's immediate. It works. Mm -hmm. And that makes his next sentence kind of interesting because he says, in 3,000 years, we need humanity help. I would point out, because I like to nitpick the logograms, that (laughs) Abbott's name seems to be on top of that one. So I'm not someone screwed up <laughs> i can't think of a context in which abbott's name fits the sentence since you know he's dead hmm. mm-hmm. well he's death he is death process well he, he's gonna need help most of all i mean that, that <laughs> sounds like he's in a really bad way yeah, yeah three every three thousand years they can bring him back it's fine and they'll but they'll need our help mm. <laughs> yeah and i mean here we get into all kinds of problems with time because what does a year mean to a heptapod is there enough scientific nuance where Costello knows, okay, when I say year, these humans are going to think they're solar year. But what I actually mean is years on heptapod homeworld, which is equivalent to <laughs> yeah. 300,000 of human years. Or the biblical thing where a year is a day. He actually means just in like 10 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you oh, better get ready. Oh, no. We, we well, have a month. More with We're going to be in trouble. Predictions. <laughs> He's like, we're going to be back next week. I hope you're ready. To help us. We got we have three days to figure out faster than light travel. Oh boy, we we better get cracking. Put some coffee on. <laughs> Louise asks, "How can you know the future?" And we get this shot of Costello's head, which it's hard to tell on my copy on my computer, but it does seem like his head does sort of reshape. It was kind of like Rorschach's mask. Like it seems like it gets darker in the middle. Like something opened. I don't know. I might have been imagining it as he's making this big uh, throbbing sound. It's hard to tell with all the the cloudy Mm -hmm. atmosphere that they're in. It seemed to me that the skin of the heptapods is very similar in kind of coloration consistency to the outside of the shell. Yeah. And there's... You know, just like you can almost kind of make out patterns in the the little bumps and imperfections in the shell. You can almost like Rorschach something onto Costello's face. I'm doing the air quotes thing. But yeah. it's so hard to tell what's going on on someone else's face. I mean, then you throw in seven more limbs and gosh, what are you going to do? And still no eyes. But that's <laughs> yeah. fine. They're aliens. They could have sonar or something else. It's fine. Well, they they have to be well. They have to be able to see something, right? Because they have a written language, and yes. they're able to see Luis's writing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I had that thought as well. Like, okay, well, maybe they see by echolocation or sonar or something like that. But like, but no, that wouldn't. That w- would have to be really sensitive in order to get through whatever the glass wall is yep. in between them and the humans, and then pick up the marker on the whiteboard. There must be yeah. some kind of visual input. In the story, they have seven eyes to go with their seven limbs, and so it's more obvious. But this version of them, I guess the eyes are just up on the larger creature that's moving his hands around. Yet again, another decision to make the aliens less creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should have been hands, should have had seven eyes. Yeah, which now would be on its wrists, I guess, which is a great place for eyes. <laughs> 
Oh, oh boy, I don't like this image. No, I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable. Well, Louise closes her very normal eyes, and we see a shot of Hannah. She barely comes into focus, and we're back on Louise. Then we get the shot of Hannah's arms, and she's walking her fingers over a rock. Then Hannah picking up a small rock from next to a bigger one. And so in my notes, I put, yeah, it's like the heptapods because she's seeing her hands first. Mm-hmm. But she says, I don't understand. Who is this child? We get a shot of Costello's head as he says something. And then we see Hannah holding her drawing that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. And we hear her say, the show is called Mommy and Daddy Talk to Animals. And we see the drawing framed on the wall, but then we get an extra shot to let us know for sure, in case we're still confused that it's the future. Because her Play-Doh version of this, instead of the bird in a cage, has a clay version of a large black creature that has seven-ish limbs. The limb in the back is very solid, I think, to hold the body up, so it's hard to tell. So how much does Hannah know about what her parents did that she basically named her show what they did that they saved the world she yeah. called that mommy and daddy talked to animals, yeah, talk to animals. they talked to heptapods mm-hmm. or that's very specious hannah... of you hannah i have to say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or did hannah internalize or have any of her mom's gift of what well i think i think with the, the mm-hmm. talk to animals title it seems like she might not know much mm-hmm. in the script her thing is mommy and daddy saved the world which does seem like she knows what yeah. happened like she's heard stories about what they did mm-hmm. we don't know how much gets publicized yeah, that, that would give away the game too much earlier in the film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mommy and Daddy Talk to Animals is kid-friendly enough and accurate to a version of the story that you'd be told about this without spoiling this twist, which I have to say, I really yeah. appreciate the way this has been handled in the movie because you know, the movie got me. At the beginning, I thought, okay, so we see this whole tragic arc of Luis and her daughter, and that's why she's alone in this house, which is big enough for a family, but it's obviously very sad, and she feels very isolated, and all the framing and the shots of the movie mm-hmm. emphasize that, or communicate this is a woman who is alone and has lost something, and so the film editing tricks us into thinking the future is the past, and now at this moment, you suddenly realize, oh, you got me, Denise, <laughs> you tricky son of a gun. Now, Hannah does know they had their orange suits, because... The versions yeah. of them are orange. Mm-hmm. Could just be a coincidence, but it seems like she knows they had hazmat suits. Yeah, the the show version that Hannah puts together just makes me think of Luis and Ian making a career of trying to use the logograms to talk to chimpanzees and dolphins and <laughs> oh, wow. you know, and all these other animals. Like the talking to animals, like that just becomes their thing. Like, okay, can, can we use this for for everything else? And, <laughs> and we didn't see uh, we we don't see the chimpanzee delegation to the United Nations in the the yeah. party scene coming up there in a different room (laughs) we see the frame drawing again we see louise and costello there's already a new logogram in place which we can't quite see the whole thing but we get a subtitle louise sees future and i I find that interesting it's see not know and i I think that Mm. opens up and i think a, a distinction because knowing something implies an internalization of it that i i don't i when i know something even if it's external to me there's a mental representation that i make myself now don't worry kids we're not going to get into epistemology but the (laughs) the the seeing implies an an externality to it you know i I can see something and not understand it not know it not fully experience it well of course we always use seeing as as a metaphor for knowing if someone says oh i see they're they're talking yeah. about their mental understanding but i think in terms of how the heptapods understand time and language i think their experience is more about seeing the future than knowing the future 
they are beholding it somehow and that is they recognize it as external to them as something over which they do not have control, but there is still a way in which they have access to it. Or, or at the least that's Louise's understanding at this point. Yeah. Is that she's only seeing it because she doesn't know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. And so she has she hasn't taken it in. Yeah, she's still a kangaroo. L- yeah. Louise's name is on this logogram at the top right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the other bits translate as specifically. But this goes from a shot to Louise with baby Hannah, and then Louise now, Costello, and then a new logogram that says, Weapon Opens Time. They were having a bad problem with logograms in this segment because this includes neither the word for weapon nor the word for time. Oh no! <laughs> Spaghetti Cat Greenly, that's not what you're trying to say. Yeah, how, how, how much, I mean, in, in these previous minutes, how much have you talked about Slaughterhouse-Five? Because this feels very unstuck in time to me i i think a guest mentioned it did did they i don't remember that maybe really briefly i remember someone saying something about it but otherwise we haven't really talked about slaughterhouse five the the unstuck in time part that was the 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 primary fiction work that i was reminded of when when watching this section of the movie so for those of you who have forgotten english class from high school slaughterhouse five by kurt vonnegut the protagonist billy pilgrim has this traumatic experience in World War II and becomes unstuck in time, where his consciousness is no longer tied to the linear flow of causality that we normally experience time. And so the book is written in this way that jumps back and forth between various events in Billy Pilgrim's life that tries to evoke that feeling of being unmoored. Now, Vonnegut uses being unstuck in time as a metaphor for dealing with trauma and being kind of dissociated from oneself and trying to move away from a source of pain in one's life. Here, the experience that Louise has of being unstuck in time actually has a, a similar effect to it, but the memories that were given here is not around the trauma, not around the loss, but around the relationship that she mm-hmm. has with this person she doesn't know yet. And we'll, and later in these minutes, there's the whole extended dialogue beside the lake where her relationship has to incorporate that fact of being aware of the various events in time, that, that how does a person who's unstuck in time love someone right in front of them in the way that you would want a parent and child to have a loving relationship, especially when there's that shadow of loss that covers everything. Yeah, and we'll get to that conversation in a bit. After he writes Weapon Opens Time, we get a wide shot as Costello swims away and everything kind of fades to white and Louise says, wait, now wait. Uh, we we get a, a shot of Louise in her home, and I would point out that the lighting is different than we've seen in this room. The dining room has always been darkly lit, so that the that lamp, especially over the table, right. is a silhouette. Yeah. There's a visual like allusion to the ship, mm-hmm. and now it's a lamp. It's lit, and the room looks different. We get a musical cue, which seems to be, which is an interesting way of phrasing it, transmutation at a distance from the soundtrack. The movie version, it sounds like they took the bass away. So it's th- it's that track, mm. but sounds different. Like they, The balance is different for the movie. So they transmuted transmutation. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that the lamp kind of evokes the, the ship and, and the UFO, and now it's lit. So now illumination has come from mm-hmm. the alien vessel and is lighting up the interior of Luis's life. Yeah. And it's only now that the ship then reorients in reality to be more like like the lamp 
mm-hmm. when it has been standing up. That's where this, the next shot is, the landing site, as the shell repositions to horizontal, or starts to. And Louise does her best Maria von Trapp impersonation. <laughs> yeah, comes up over the hill. The hills are alive with the sound of heptopods. And we uh, see that she is... I, I would point out also that more time has seems to have passed inside the shell than outside, or she's just been in there longer than we were able to see because there is no signs of the gunfight that was happening right below the shell just a few minutes ago. Oh, yeah. I forgot about those jerks. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, the trucks are gone. They're gone. And now more vehicles are coming. I, I feel like this is time has passed. Yeah. Well, it's shot and looks like a near-death experience mm-hmm. just like the etherealness like yeah. her face her hair the lighting and so well and as it's... far as anyone else knows she didn't go have a conversation with costello they weren't there they saw well we can assume they saw that little pod that came out and got her but that could have been in her head we don't know yeah it's not obvious from the editing i think it's deliberately not yeah. obvious uh, yeah exactly exactly you, you, there's like there's no that gunfight doesn't matter anymore it's gone. yeah there's no shot of ian pounding on the outside of a little pod that takes yeah. Luis away so it, it's left to interpretation mm-hmm. yeah to to your point sir about the etherealness of the scene my thought was turned toward the experience of mystics well they'll come away from an experience of something higher something transcendent and they're just kind of left kind of wild and breathless back in the real world and there's just too much for them to fully comprehend so i was reminded of the stories from the bible of moses coming down the mountain and jesus coming out of his time in the desert and those are both instances where there's been an encounter with reality with a capital r and results in a fundamental change yeah absolutely or even plato's allegory of the cave Mm -hmm. there too where she's stepping out of the cave and she's receiving that sunlight Mm -hmm. yeah and she has more information than everyone else does yeah and same thing it's so much that you don't know how to process it right away in plato's allegory of the cave of course they run back into the cave because the shadow world is easier to process and deal with nope no can't can't look at the sun yeah (laughs) (laughs) nope good is too good no 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 back to the shadows for me can't nope mm -mm. Now, Weber and Ian show up in pickups, but along with those pickups on the road, there are three tanks coming over the hill. There are helicopters in the sky. The military is moving in, which is strange because Weber says they're evacuating, but you shouldn't move your vehicles toward the alien ship then. That seems aggressive. Yeah, but then you get a shot of a tank. That's always fun. Yeah. I mean, one of my notes is, yay, a tank. But that's just because (laughs) I'm still a nine-year-old boy. Like, ooh, hooray. (laughs) The big thing with a gun. Neat. Even though then, like, yeah, like you say, you point out the narrative. Wait, hold on. No, that's not good. No, we don't like the tanks here. No. And if the tanks are now coming this direction, it means they're no longer blocking the regular public on the highway, (gasps) which means there's going to be a swarm of people coming. This is going to get very messy very fast. Oh, my gosh. Which is what they didn't want. But Weber and Ian get out. Ian immediately goes to Louise and puts a blanket around her shoulders, asks her if she's all right. And he asks her what happened. And she says, like you just said, Sarah, I'm trying to figure it out. This is too big. She she can't understand. No words. They should have sent a poet. No words. No words. (laughs) To describe. (laughs) Poetry. They should have said the poet. So beautiful. Beautiful. 
<laughs> so beautiful. And Weber, practical, says, doesn't matter now. We have orders to evacuate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, always, I chuckled when I watched the movie and, and when just rewatching that clip. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. Have your mystic experience later. We've got to figure this out. out. in the truck. We got to go. <laughs> doesn't matter now. Everyone's got guns and they're going crazy. <laughs> yeah, she asks why. And he says, Russia and Sudan are following China. Which means Russia's got two of the locations. That means four out of the 12 locations are now essentially declaring war against their shells. That's not good. Right, which I I suppose is why they have the tanks there. Because if things go sideways in Russia and China and Sudan, then something's going to start happening here in Montana. And they don't want to get caught flat-footed. Not in Montana. No, of course not. No. And she's, Luis again says, I don't understand. I think that's the third or fourth time in this segment. And Hannah says, help me, Mama. And we cut first to Louise, uh, Louise's booted legs and Hannah's feet with she has one foot as a sock. And we're outside, so we're getting, like, body parts first instead of the whole image. Mm-hmm. As More proof for the hand theory. Ian, yeah. Ian tries to help her in the present, and Louise faints. Ian catches her, and we go to Hannah and Louise walking. Hannah shakes her hand and says, Mom. And so in my notes, I put that this is Louise remembering, remembering this moment, because there at the lake, she's remembering, like, this is, oh, this is that thing I saw before. Yeah, the audio bridge with the helicopter fly over mm-hmm. while she's standing on the lake cements that. Yeah. And yeah, so that's the, the how exactly Luis's brain works now that she's opening time using the heptapod language is so hard for me trapped in the linear flow of time to fully understand. Yeah. So remembering, I think, is just the best way to try and talk about it because it's not quite seeing, it's not quite knowing, but it's clear that she's still a little unstuck in time because she asks her daughter what day it is mm-hmm. and being told sunday is not really helpful to someone who's <laughs> yeah. unstuck in time no then she's like she's got to scream at her say what year what day is it the date's wrong may thursday what year <laughs> who's the president yeah and it is a cool image here and the fact that she lost her boot yeah, again she has appendages, a boot off. hands and feet and that her losing her boot makes it difficult to stand on these rocks and it's already rocks it's not like a solid ground to begin with mm-hmm. it's like uneven rocks mm. that they're standing on and then you have the view of the water which recalls like the opening scenes of the film where we're looking at the water through outside the house yeah. outside the house well yeah mm-hmm. through the window though yep. just like we were watching the heptapods through the screens and mm-hmm. when we lose the screens between heptapod and louise we're also losing that window barrier between the house house and the water and they're directly in front of the water now i'm not sure exactly what all that means i just thought it was (laughs) cool it does it does fit like there are no longer screen barriers i think probably in the film Mm because she has a phone conversation with Mm -hmm. not uh, not like a zoom call yeah which is an intercut with a face-to-face conversation yeah they don't go back into the nave again Mm -mm. so the screens are done and now everything is meet more immediate yes yeah the the the, me- the mediation is gone because in the conversation that Luis has with costello it's the first time we get closed captioning on the logograms yeah. and so we have an an almost immediate experience of communication with the heptapods for the first time and Luis 
now has the weapon. She has the language. She's she's able to experience time in this further unmediated way. It's her experience of time is no longer mediated by time. Ow, my brain. Um, so she <laughs> so she doesn't have to see things through a particular window through that linear flow of things she's able to take it all in just like you don't look at one part of the ocean when you look at the ocean you look at the ocean and you know if you just looking at one little cup of water from the ocean like well that's not the ocean you got to look at the whole thing if you want to understand it yeah and then in that moment hannah brings her down to the moment by saying Mm -hmm. are you gonna leave me like daddy did and so it becomes very now and she has to have this conversation mm-hmm. for the rest of the segment. She can't just look at that ocean anymore or the, I don't know what they're supposed to live next to, but it's the, uh, I think it's a bay outside of Montreal in reality. She says, oh, Hannah, honey, your daddy didn't leave you. You're going to see him this weekend. She rubs her arm all reassuring like. But, but it's already Hannah, Sunday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. It, yeah. it, it is um, already the weekend. Where is where is dad? <laughs> Uh, Hannah shrugs and says, he doesn't look at me the same way anymore, which is really sad. He didn't even show up this weekend. I know. (laughs) Like, the weekend's almost over. (laughs) Yeah. Mom, are you blowing smoke again? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Louise looks down and then back up and tries to explain, as you can, to, uh, but this is Hannah age eight, right? So you can't really explain all of this to an eight-year-old very well. And he says, it's my fault. I told him something that he wasn't ready to hear. What? Well, believe it or not, I know something that's going to happen. I can't explain how I know. I just do. And when I told your daddy, he got rid... Wait a second. Hmm. She told him when the kid was eight or or earlier. Yeah. (sighs) And it's like, is that a good thing to do? Because now he just... He's a dick. (laughs) (laughs) She dies at 15. There are years in there. Oh, my God. Okay, thank you. I had the same reaction to this, but then, but then I thought about it. Like, okay, there is, there is, of course, no ideal time to no, tell your I, husband. No, I forgot when it was that he die. found out. And I'm like, oh, so of course you can't. So he's already been around for years. I mean, option one is just not to say anything, but yeah. relationships are built on trust and honesty, so that doesn't seem ideal. <laughs> Telling him after she dies seems worse yeah but you knew it was coming and you didn't do anything about it so there's now there's no possibility for change so maybe telling him early enough where he is able to come to peace with the fact that she's going to die maybe that was just the best decision yeah but kids are so perceptive even if he's not intentionally doing anything he could be not intentionally being a jerk but you would look at someone i'm not saying he's being a jerk to hannah uh, like by looking at her no no no. i'm not saying you're saying he's being a jerk to hannah but i'm just saying his reaction isn't necessarily jerky like no, he wouldn't his, be able to control this it's not his reaction in the moment but he's got like seven more years to come back and be better and i don't get the impression that that ever happens Mm-mm. we don't see enough of the later days she's that is, Hannah still has a relationship with her dad mm-hmm. later because there's the non-zero sum game yeah. conversation and Hannah's 13, 14 at that point, it seems to me. So Ian's still a part of her life. He hasn't mm-hmm. completely dropped her by that point and maybe things have improved by then. But we don't see mm-hmm. Ian with Luis in any of the hospital room scenes where Hannah's lost all her hair and she's obviously in the final days. Yeah. What I'm wondering is, is Luis talking too much to Hannah about this it seems like she's 
telling her more than maybe an eight-year-old needs to know maybe well yeah this conversation is a lot of information missing just a few key elements all you're gonna do is make her curious what those elements are like what rare disease who's rare disease is daddy dying (laughs) should i be worried oh no oh poor hannah she's gonna think her dad's gonna die oh yeah because she says when i told your daddy he got really mad and he said i made the wrong choice and hannah asked what what's going to happen and, she, and Louise says it has to do with a really rare disease and it's unstoppable. And then she gets nice. Kind of like you are with your swimming and your poetry and all the amazing things that you share with the world. And the segment cuts off in the middle of Hannah saying, I am unstoppable. <laughs> she has, she says it like a question. It's cute. But yeah, that it's, this, this is a lot it seems of... seems like a lot. It's just too much information to not be all of it. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because eight-year-olds are both, I mean, having had three of them from my experience, I realize everyone's kids are a little bit different, but it's like they're both highly aware to where they'd be asking questions and smart, but also not really emotionally capable yet to mm-hmm. process certain things. And I'm just wondering. Why isn't like... Louise raising her daughter without time? <laughs> prepare her for this well it, it's different when <laughs> you have someone going through obvious biological changes it's it's different if you come to be unstuck in time as an adult mm. because you, you don't have the same physical awareness she's a maturity yeah like a lot a lot not in the same time span anyway louise's change is going to now be measured in decades rather than in months whereas louise's uh rather hannah is going to be growing and developing and over a short period of time so being unstuck in time is i mean teenagers already have enough to deal with she doesn't have to also add the fundamental shift in her understanding of time and metaphysics i guess <laughs> <laughs> no look everyone raises their kids differently yeah. i'm not, I'm yeah. not <laughs> you show I'm not saying what you should, should when she's still an infant you try to incorporate them into her brain. Oh, is Hannah the weird kid in her class <laughs> yeah. that hands in all of her homework and logograms? Right. <laughs> and Mrs. Smith says, Hannah, sweetie, we've talked about this. You you need to turn in your homework in English. I I know I know this is more efficient. I, I, yeah. I know your mom has told me several times, but for me, sweetie, can you please This one logogram is my entire essay. I yeah. it explains everything. No, I, I just I can't I can't just take your word for that, Hannah. <laughs> When I, when I asked you what you did over your summer vacation, you just gave me a coffee stain, and I don't know if it's a logogram or a coffee stain. <laughs> she drank coffee. <laughs> yeah, and I, I agree that there's, you know, I was waiting for that other shoe to drop for Hannah to, you know, be an eight-year-old and ask the follow-up question about who's sick, who's disease, or what have you. But that gets passed over with the little short of hand of complimenting the kid about being unstoppable. Or you have this scene at the end of the film, and Hannah's like, oh, you mean you told him about me dying? Oh, that explains it. He's He can't handle that. And she just knows. Mm-hmm. That's the stinger. Maybe that's why Hannah says that she hates Luis. <laughs> Maybe that's when Luis finally has the conversation with Hannah. It's not just a teenager outburst, but Luis is finally honest with Hannah about what's going to happen to her. Yeah. Like, well, you're going to get cancer. <laughs> you're going to get super movie cancer. Every time she gets mad at the kid, she's like, you know you're going to die, and I know when. <laughs> Oh my gosh. If you're not I'm careful, I'll tell you. an abusive household. Oh no. Oh. Just hold that over her well, head. I mean, to put, a, to put a positive spin on this, I have to say I was really taken by the affirmation of the dignity of life that's in this moment. Because Louise sees what's going to come mm-hmm. with Hannah. She knows from the end of the movie, which is the start of Hannah's story, she sees the whole thing. And even though she looks 
that pain and suffering of Hannah in the face. She's able to see that in the context of all of the joy, the, the swimming, the poetry, the drawing, all of the, the good uh, inherent dignity of Hannah's life, see that of a piece and still choose to love this girl. Yeah. And her affection, her gift of herself to her daughter is... Uh, undimmed by the shadow of suffering that that is over her relationship with her daughter from the very beginning. And even though she knows from the end of this movie that her daughter is going to die, still she loves her, still she grieves her, still she's pained when those things happen. Yeah. And for me, as as a Catholic priest, that is a way into understanding how God sees us. In the Catholic understanding of God, God doesn't exist within time. Every moment exists in the eternal now for God. And God is therefore able to see the entire context of our lives, like seeing an entire logogram at once, with all the joys and sorrows equally present. And whatever we do, whatever happens, that does not change God's love for us, that there is still a choice God makes to call us into existence, even though this is a world where good and evil come mixed together. And Louise makes that same choice when she decides to love Ian, when she decides to give birth to Hannah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and he decides when to land his 12 shells around and do his little hand puppets. <laughs> all the scientists. Yes, I, I, did, I did note, because, you know, there are certain numbers that, that pique my curiosity, like, oh, 12. 12 mm -hmm. is an right. interesting yeah. number. Yeah. 12 is a very biblical yes. number. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and then, that, then and there wasn't really anything the film, else too. of it. Yeah. In, mm -hmm. in the story, it's 112. And that is where a lot of people get stuck in life, is like being able to move on like from a traumatic event or being worried about traumatic events to come and yeah her lesson is just in accepting that all of it exists and being able to feel all of it and process all of it well it's it's mm -hmm. like say 15 years after a traumatic event she'd still be grieving over it in some way and still sad over it this is 15 years before it and she is experiencing that same thing it's just coming from the other mm -hmm. direction mm -hmm. and so she what the heptapods are showing her is how to live now regardless yeah it's, you know you're all gonna die and the options ultimately are hannah's existence versus hannah not in existence yeah. so the choice is going to be hannah's existence if we look at all of time again as like that grand canvas even existence for a moment or for a short time means that you're on that canvas and what's the option or what's the alternative to that it's just nothingness no experience mm -hmm. so mm. you choose creation right. and experience over nothing well it's like that that yeah. line i couldn't remember what movie it was from from but it's from finding nemo which says mm -hmm. i didn't I promise never like nothing would ever happen to him she's like you wanted nothing to happen to it yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> that, that doesn't work and it's dory who under who gets that difference mm -hmm. because she experiences everything now she's the enlightened one now dory would be a quick study yeah. of the heptapod language uh -huh. right <laughs> Well, she might have trouble studying it, but once she knows yeah. it, she'd be really good at it. <laughs> we know she's a great linguist. I mean, she speaks whale. True, yeah. true. She does. Now, <laughs> any any last thoughts on this segment of the movie? I really like just just in the, as a, as a way of talking about the movie overall. I love movies like Arrival, which are about really big ideas 
but they give you time to just sit with it and it gives everything time to breathe. And the ideas here are about time and language and the, the goodness of a life, even in the face of suffering. And so being able to have a product of our culture still wrestling with these ideas and still being able to include cool things like tanks and aliens. I mean, this has to be the best timeline. Yeah. Now, if people want to find you out in there in that timeline, <laughs> where can they uh, find you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Father Mowry. That's F-R-M-O-W-R-Y. You can also go to my website, fatherdavidmowry.com, where ostensibly I have a blog. But more importantly, <laughs> I have a catalog of all of my appearances on various movies by minutes shows. So uh, you can be unstuck in time and just skip around all the various <laughs> uh, shows that I've been on. I including a great run on Best Minutes recently, the 10 episodes of that yes talking about the 1946 film the best years of our lives it was my first try at hosting one of these movies by minute shows and uh, boy let me tell you doing it five minutes at a time like you guys is very smart <laughs> <laughs> yeah it speeds things up <laughs> and makes it easier i i would also say i'm going to be on best minutes probably pretty close to the time this episode comes out because I'm at uh, 91 to 100, and Sarah is in one of those with me. Go listen to Best Minutes, I guess. Yeah, that just happened. Thank you for listening. Follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 5-Minute Arrival. Or go to lemmingdrops.com for links. to think this was the beginning of your story.